0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: If you're the government, you want expert advisors. You won't always do what they say because you're the government. That means you have multiple constituencies with different priorities and abilities to make your life difficult. So you have to prioritise. You have to choose your battles. All true. But what if your experts, the people you're relying on, had a kind of groupthink Hello, I'm Richard Aidey. This is The Money. More on the advisers who tend to see things in too similar a manner coming up. Let's start with the appointment of the new RBA governor. There's been a lot written and a lot said about Michelle Bullock, current deputy at the Reserve Bank. But a lot of the framing of her has been a bit solid, competent, not opposed by the opposition. First woman in the role. Julian Bykovsky is a senior journalist at the Mandarin, which covers the public sector. Julian, you think Michelle Bullock's being underestimated?
0: I think she has been underestimated. She's been with the bank for about 40 years. So she's a lifetime employee, for want of a better word. Um, Michelle's very technically competent, but she's also an economist and having those two Combinations of things is something that uh, people often neglect to look at when they just focus on monetary policy.
1: That thing you said about being there 40 years, being a lifetime, a lifer, these days that is not regarded positively generally, is it? It's often regarded as well, you know, if they were really bright, they'd have gone and done something somewhere else.
0: Well, in banking, certainly the Reserve Bank of Australia is not the highest paid organisation. So sometimes people, bankers especially, like to view it through that lens. If she could have made money somewhere else, then she may have. Um, I don't think that's a fair characterisation of Michelle Bullock. I think she's someone who's incredibly committed to public purpose and the good that a public institution like the Reserve Bank can bring, especially around elements like financial infrastructure, Um, making sure that the payment system works properly, efficiently, lowering the cost to businesses and consumers of making everyday transactions, those sorts of things. Mm.
1: So why do you think she's been kind of underestimated so far? I mean, probably most people only heard about her in the lead up to the announcement last week. We haven't heard just how capable she is.
0: Yeah, I guess a lot of the debate around the central bank tends to get framed around monetary policy and interest rates, because that's really what, I guess, mum and dads at home care about. They care about the mortgage and the cost of living. Where the underestimation, I think, maybe comes in is that there's a lack of knowledge generally in terms of the amount of work that the RBA does in other areas, apart from setting monetary policy. So she's been right around the bank. She started off in economics. She went to the payment system. She cleaned up the security mess, which was basically a bribery scandal. Um, And she was also, as part of that, in charge of actually printing the money.
1: Come back to security. I think it's important. So essentially, it's because not enough journalists have understood exactly what the RBA does.
0: That's part of it. It's also because the RBA is pretty complex and it is pretty technical. I mean, it's basically, if you look at the banking side, a giant money pump. And it's part of a very complex network. The language around that is often inaccessible. It's either in econocrates or payment systems jargon where people don't understand things like interchange rates or what those mean. She's got a huge brain. Um, She's able to to absorb huge amounts of detail really quickly and just process through it.
1: The reason we're talking to you is you wrote this piece on her in the Mandarin. And one of the things you pointed out is that she's perhaps feared to an extent within the banking industry. Now, why is that?
0: Well, when Michelle was in charge of the payment system or running the payment system department of the RBA, it's a very heavily contested space in terms of looking for policy outcomes. There's large multinational interests that are aligned with um, retail bank interests and mentioned before interchange fees. That's the cost. Of making a transaction that gets levied usually on a merchant Mm. and she introduced some pretty strong reforms there and just didn't cop it basically there was a lot of lobbying there was a lot of to and fro you know going through the Treasury to try and influence the outcome but she just stuck with her principles and um, didn't really budge much on those outcomes and she got pretty well what she wanted
1: so she's a astute accomplished technocrat big brain got all the skills And as you pointed out, the RBA is in the news cycle, predominantly because of monetary policy, the interest rate thing. It does these other things.
0: It does. It's unusual in an international context. Canada's probably the next closest example. But um, in England, for example, with the payment system and um, with the way a lot of those fees are set, that function's been hived off from the central bank. It's now off to the side. There's a British payment systems regulator that deals solely with that. The technical parts of the bank, which I guess people don't really often appreciate, are just actually maintaining the network and network stability, which in a digital age is really, it's super important because if electronic payments don't flow, the economy stops.
1: Yeah. I tell you what, it's a a news event every time it happens. You know, if something happens with Westpac payments or NAB payments, it leads the news that evening.
0: Well, that's true. The RBA also, in conjunction with the banks, spent about a billion dollars overhauling the payment system so that these real time payments occur now. They've kind of been occurring since the 80s in reality, but the old direct deposit system is now pretty well on the way out. Mm. And they're switching it over or have switched a large part of it over to the so-called new payments platform, which is based on a European or international standard called SWIFT, their organisation. Um, there's been a few outages at the RBA, but one of the, um, or the two specifically, one of the things people also may not realise is that they are now monitoring payment outages at banks and they publish those statistics. So this is really a, a kind of a, a name and shame yeah. exercise to make that performance visible, which it wasn't before.
1: If you don't measure it, there is not a lot of incentive to change. All right. Now, you touched on this earlier, Julian, but that's a currency scandal, which she came in afterwards to kind of sort out. Just take us through that briefly because this was, this was massive, wasn't it?
0: At a governance level, it was probably the most horrendous day that the Reserve Bank of Australia has had in its existence because it's all about trust and it's the governor's signature who's on the Mm. banknote. Australia prints a lot of money for other people. We're actually really good at it. Um, We've pioneered a lot of anti-counterfeiting technology. Polymer notes are pretty well the way to go. So, you know, we to Papua New Guinea's money, and that was set up as an export business. It was government-owned enterprise. It's a company called Note Printing Australia, and to gain access to some markets, some of their agents paid access fees, which arguably um, were bribes, and um, that came out, and then it had to be fixed, and she was the person that they chose to go in and fix that, and she did it pretty firmly.
1: Because you can imagine being in that position and thinking, actually... This could be, I'm going to use a a banking term here, this could be a shit sandwich that I don't want to have to go and deal with, but she did it.
0: Uh, She did it. In some ways I think it was partly a test but also I think she was the person that they really trusted to have their back on this and to make the difficult reforms. And they were difficult because, you know, there's a lot of prestige that comes with a central bank and to restore that prestige, to restore that trust, that's an immense task, but also have to go in there and, Get rid of a few people. Mm, yeah.
1: All right. So what are we likely to see from her as governor of the RBA?
0: I think Michelle's a fairly plain spoken person. She has a really strong grasp of kitchen table English. I think what we'll see in terms of the way she communicates is it will still be very nuanced, but it will be pretty clear cut in terms of the way she expresses herself. Um, I think she's really quite brilliant at demystifying things and explaining very complex, detailed concepts and framing it in a way that people can easily absorb.
1: Can attest to that personally. She's twice been on this program, both times talking about quite technical things and she's made it very understandable. The other thing that you've highlighted is things like systemic integrity and, and faster data for better and quicker decision-making.
0: The data piece is becoming really pivotal in terms of policy making because for decades now uh, a lot of economic policy has been really calculated based on lagging indicators bringing on real-time payments and that immediacy of data can give you a much faster window into what's happening and you can respond accordingly so if you can react to a situation that's developing more quickly and nip it in the bud or you know apply a bit more fuel where it's needed then that fine-tunes the economy a bit better. She's been really instrumental in that.
1: Julian, it's been great to hear things that we otherwise have not been hearing. Thank you very much for coming in.
0: Pleasure to be here, Richard.
1: Julian Bykowski from The Mandarin. And if you're listening, Dr Bullock, we'd love to have you back on The Money. Anger that's been growing in France boils over into red-hot rage. <laughs> Thousands gathered for one
0: final protest before the country's constitutional court cleared the path for the president to bring in his pension reform.
1: That was in April. The reforms, the key one raises the minimum pension age from 62 to 64, are now law. But the most recent protest was just last month. A bit different to here. We raised our pension age to 67 a couple of weeks ago with barely a peep. Peter Whiteford's in the Crawford School at the ANU. Peter, vive la différence. But why?
2: Well, in France, there's a tradition of having protests against raising the pension age. Uh, Prime ministers have been replaced because uh, they couldn't get through pension changes back in about 1993. Uh, So the French have a a well-established habit of demonstrating against um, changes to the pension system. I think some of the most recent um, demonstrations were some of the biggest demonstrations since the 1968 uh, in
1: Paris. What is it about the French pension and, and retirement benefits that that draws such passions?
2: So social security systems in most other places apart from Australia are extremely popular because people have been contributing to them for up to 40 years. The contributions they make are pretty substantial and their employers also make substantial contributions. So... Social Security is very much seen as a right you have earned by making these contributions over your working life. Because the contributions are much higher than the share of income tax that goes to pensions here, they also provide for much more generous payments when you retire.
1: Why did the Macron government push for change in the face of the the opposition they they almost certainly knew they were going to get, and then of course they really got it. What was their case for reform?
2: It's the case for reform that's almost universal, that um, populations are aging quite significantly, In Europe and as in Australia and the United States, the baby boom generation has um, been entering retirement uh, and that generation is much bigger than generations who came afterwards. So the balance between the number of people who are paying into the system and the number of people who are benefiting from the system uh, is changing very significantly.
1: They have a larger older population than we do, don't they?
2: Yeah, so we're about 27% of the of the population are over 65 and they're about 37% of the population.
1: Right, yeah, that's significant.
2: We spend about 4% of our gross domestic product on public pensions uh, and they spend closer to 14% of wow. their, more than three times as much. That's, um, that's not the full effect of the population ageing uh, working its way through.
1: Let's talk about how this plays out. One of the ways it does is something called the replacement rate. What is it and how does it differ Between France and Australia across different income levels?
2: If you're um, a man in France who has been earning 100% of the average wage, when you retire under the system that existed just prior to the previous, most recent changes, you get nearly three quarters of your previous earnings in a pension. Now, when you compare that to Australia, if you yeah. have the combination of um, how much you've accumulated in superannuation and people who are getting some part rate pension, uh, the corresponding figure in Australia is 40%. So, it's the difference between getting 40% of your previous earnings and three-quarters of your yes. previous earnings.
1: It's almost half. <laughs> it's well, yeah, it's yeah, a bit yeah, more yeah, than yeah. half of what you would get in France.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now... In Australia, if you have been earning one and a half times the average wage, your income is a little bit lower, it's a bit under 40%. That's because more of the work is being done by superannuation then, rather than the age pension, you're a lower age pension but because you have more superannuation. In France, you're getting uh, nearly two-thirds of your previous earnings. So uh, again, a much more significant amount. Now, because we provide a flat rate pension that, that's relatively generous to low-income people, the proportion of your previous earnings that you get if you were if all your life you'd only earned half the average, which it would be nearly the same in Australia and France. So, you, so in Australia you'd be getting seventy percent of your previous earnings, and France, right. you'd be getting seventy-one percent. So, our system focuses on low-income groups yeah. uh, and gives them something that's comparable to the French relative level, but their system gives much more support to average earners and, and higher than average yeah. earners than ours does.
1: Peter, what happens when you compare household incomes after tax for those currently working and those who've retired?
2: If you look at the average income of people with their household heads aged over 65 compared to the average income of the total population in Australia, that's about 75%. In France, it's, for all practical purposes, it's 100%. So on average, French people in retirement are no poorer than the population generally. But we're, we're very much towards the bottom end of OECD countries and France is pretty close to the top end of OECD yeah.
1: countries. There is of course a quite a big difference between France and Australia when you look at private wealth, especially private wealth feeding into retirement. Why is that?
2: In France, workers and employers are paying much higher taxes during their working lives. So they have less capacity to save privately, but they have less need to save privately because they're getting a very large proportion of their previous earnings when they retire. Whereas in Australia, our system, because it targets the poor, means that we have lower taxes than France does. So we have more capacity to save, but also we have um, more need to save because our system uh, doesn't replace as much of our previous earnings as the French system does. There's both the capacity to save privately and the need to save privately. Now the other thing that we've done for a very long period of time we exclude the family home from the assets test. So there's a reasonably strong incentive in the age pension system if you could afford to buy a home during your working life to do that. So we have much higher housing wealth in retirement, but we also have a much higher private wealth. So The incentives and the structure of, our, as I said, our tax and welfare system has had this, I think, probably quite profound long-term effect on on the way wealth is structured in Australia compared to a lot of other countries. Uh, To mention, Australia is the only high-income country in which the basic government payment is income-tested. New Zealand pays everybody over the age of 65 the same amount Um, and there are some other countries that give more to low-income people, but we're the only high-income country that only has a government income-tested payment. All the others have some combination of um, income-testing and contributory systems.
1: You've unpacked it pretty well as to why the French feel so profoundly that having to work longer before they can retire and get the pension is not a good deal for them. It means less in absolute value, doesn't it? Because you aren't going to live as long after you retire as you would have if you got to retire a few years earlier.
2: Yeah, exactly. If you reach the age of 65, you've probably got, on average, um, a bit over 20 years to live. And so if you raise the pension age by two years, you're taking two years out of 22 years. The other way of thinking about what the French system does is that we have more private wealth in retirement, we have more home ownership, we have the superannuation system. In France, like other systems, can be thought of as a form of public wealth because the government is promising to make a payment to you uh, for the rest of your retirement, So if you calculate this public wealth that's in in the pension system, raising the pension age by two years is equivalent to cutting that wealth by um, close to 10%, actually. Yeah. Now, if you think that if uh, an Australian government came out with a proposal saying we're going to cut your wealth by 10% with this change, um, you can understand there'd be quite a few protests about that as well. The other thing is, By raising the pension age, the effect is biggest for people who retire in the future. So people will have to work longer and it's it's actually people of working age on whom an increase in the pension age has uh, the biggest impact.
1: Professor Peter Whiteford from the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. You probably heard the phrase that fish don't see the ocean. We have no way of knowing if that's true, but you get the meaning. It's their environment, they're in it, it's where their lives happen. It's so fundamental that it's invisible. Now, a Sydney University researcher and his colleagues are suggesting that something similar is happening when it comes to tax reform. Mattia Anaza says this comes about from a lack of diversity in who gets to advise the government.
3: What we found is that All the people that basically lead these changes that we've been seeing in the last 10 years in uh, in taxation are people who come from a similar and very homogeneous background. Um, And I'm not talking here just about where they have been working, but also what type of education they got.
1: We'll dig into that. But at the heart of what's been happening to the Australian tax system is something called the Australian Board of Taxation. Yes. Which has been in the news over the PwC scandal. Although I think most people listening now aren't really clear on on what that is. So what is it? So it's
3: a non-statutory board that provides advice from a business and broader community perspective to the treasury um, and to the ATO. I mean, generally to, to our government. So think about like a business that taps into the expertise of experts on a particular topic. So you see the board of taxation as being this body that provides advice on how to shape our tax system.
1: It's the kind of chief advisor to the government on tax.
3: Yes, we could could say so. Yeah, all right.
1: So what does the board do? Uh, it provides advice
3: on uh, the effectiveness and the functioning of the tax system and how to optimize, how to, to better shape it. And there's also wording on uh, how to avoid red tape, which is kind of a very normative way on how to shape the tax system. And that has consequences for how we we, we see business and how we see the broader society perspective coming in, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, Yeah, well, and I'll get to that. But what are your concerns about it? Is this about conflict of interest?
3: Um, conflict of interest is something that's come up with the PwC tax leak. And of course, I'm, <laughs> I'm concerned about how uh, people who have been working in a particular, or are still working in the consulting sector and selling some tax product. I think this is in, in, in summary, what people have been concerned about in terms of conflict of interest, shaping our tax system, and at the same time, advising corporations and multinationals and business on how to um, not avoid, but try to minimize the impact of of new regulation on their on their business but what i'm most concerned of is how those people have this homogeneous way of thinking and yeah. do not see a broader impact of taxation and broader impact of tax minimization on society more broadly
1: i'm going to, i want to get to that in a minute but i just want to deal with the conflict of interest thing. it's been very salient lately yeah. how much is the board of taxation kind of connected to the big four accountancy firms and indeed other accountancy firms. Are we looking at sort of senior people from that industry kind of being connected to that board? Well, the board in itself used to have nine members until last week when
3: yep. <laughs> when the partner uh, resigned. But um, out of those nine, nine members up until then, and now there are eight, uh, now will be seven of them have been previous or current Consultant, So working for either the big four or other consulting companies. And then there is this other body within the board of taxation, which is called the advisory board. And as the name says, it advised the board. And out of the members on this advisory board, there are 49. 43 are
1: uh, previous or current okay. consultant. I can see the concern there, but let's get to your wider point, because this yeah. is the one you think I think is more important. What you are talking about is essentially about what these people have trained in, how they think.
3: Yes, and that, and that's the broader concern that I have because it's uh, and and that's also where where the substance of my of the academic research comes from because it's easy to go on a, on a website and see where these people work or where they come from. What's harder to understand is how their background and how their educations shape how they think. So what we did, we um, interviewed seventy seven people involved in the shaping of uh, of tax. And that was back in 2014 to 2016, during the uh, the Senate inquiry on tax avoidance, where, where yep. tax was very prominent. And uh, we asked them about their background and where where, where they came from, both from a, from a childhood perspective, but most importantly, how they got educated. And most of them were coming from economics or uh, legal background, which you would expect in the tax domain. And I'm not saying that, that that's not a background, that we, we should have an educational background. It's very important, and it's core to people uh, people who are supposed to be experts in tax. But what our research shown is that there is a complete homogeneity around how these people have been trained and of course how they think about tax.
1: What's that homogeneity? What do they think about tax?
3: Well, when we think about, from from an economics and legal perspective, and here I'm gonna make it very simplistic and uh, people- You're talking (laughs) to a journalist, so please do. Um, If we think about economics, we think about achieving um, some more efficiencies, right? Or if we think about tax in economics term, we think about a loss for business, at a cost for business, we'd call it in our paper. And um, that's just opposed to tax as a contribution to society. So if I wanna put it in very simple, term, the majority of these people and the majority of us, actually, that's that's the other interesting part about our research. Think about tax as a cost, something that Mm -hmm. we should minimize, something we should avoid. And so that has implication on how we can or um, want to shape the tax system in the future. And if we think about the implication of tax in terms of providing health services, welfare services, if we think about Tax as uh, as the money that comes in to support those services. If we want to avoid those those costs, those taxes coming in, there is then an implication down the line on how much we can provide.
1: There's been a kind of, I suppose, framework for for really um, getting on for four decades now yeah. of um, less tax, more profit, more investment, more employment. Everybody benefits. This is. Trickle down economics.
3: Well, that, that's how it has been. Uh, it has been uh, labeled, and and you've summarized it perfectly. And that's how we also called it in in the paper. And um, people will hate saying that trickle down economics. Or economists will say that they hate that trickle down economics mm. is still something that we believe in, and what we're showing in our research is that. Even if people know and particularly leaders, economists know that trickle down economics is is some sort of idealistic way of seeing the economy that doesn't work in practice. In practice, these people shape the tax system with trickle down economics back in their mind.
1: So you're saying that too many of the people who get to shape our tax system have similar training and think the same way. Yeah. And it's our fault.
3: <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an academic and I want to be critical about our own teaching as well. Uh, we have been teaching that what we should achieve as business people, uh, my students, uh, to achieve a higher profit. The more business, the more growth, the better is for all of us. And of course, when you teach people that that's how we achieve uh, societal good, we believe it and then we start acting accordingly.
1: So what are the consequences of having, I suppose, the key advisors to the government on the tax system all more or less thinking the same way and of the belief that the overarching philosophy we've had yeah. for 35 odd years is working when we know actually that in some ways it's really not working. We have greater inequality than than we have had for, for decades. I mean we're we've seen that and
3: we're we're feeling that. And to me the takeaway that I would like this government, any government, I'm not I'm not taking any political position is that broader diversity of thinking is what they should start to aim right. for.
1: So what that, What does that mean? Does that mean
3: having different people on the board of TechFace? Tech? You can't see what you can't see, and if you're trained in a, in a particular way, you can't see your blind spots. So bring in somebody with a slightly different perspective.
1: What other disciplines would be beneficial to have input into this sort of decision-making and shaping.
3: There are a lot of um, colleagues, particularly overseas, that work in tax from an anthropological perspective to see culture, Mm -hmm. uh, what it means, um, how you can shape the tax system, taking into consideration different cultures. Anthropologists, sociologists, people who have a broader perspective than just compliance as a lawyer uh, would uh, tend to think about tax or an economist aiming for uh, more profits and people who think on a... um, A broader spectrum of goals than just achieving growth uh, will be probably beneficial. And um, as the Advisory Board of Taxation goal is to bring in a business and a broader community perspective, as they say, to the shaping of the tax system. I just feel that their lack of diversity doesn't really match their goal.
1: That is a really interesting idea. Thank you very much for coming in and joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having me. Mattia Aneza is at the University of Sydney Business School. That's it for now. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidey.
0: ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.